You know, it's written in the book of Proverbs, the 27th chapter, that uh, the wounds of a friend can be trusted. The wounds of a friend can be trusted. I would say, in addition to that, the warnings of a friend can be trusted. Now, a lot of times we don't like to hear warnings because they, they seem harsh. Uh, they seem to cause us to feel like we're not measuring up. They can tend to hurt our feelings when we have warnings. But the warnings of a friend can be trusted. Jesus gives warnings to us. Now, last week was a warning. This week will be a warning. Next week, he is warning. You know where we are in the book of Matthew? We're in the 21st chapter. And uh, he's entered Jerusalem on a donkey. He's literally proclaimed to people, I'm your king. Behold, I am your king. He fulfills Zechariah 9.9 as he rides into Jerusalem. And then as a king, he does what a king does, which is to cleanse and purge the temple of, of wrong worship. And he establishes himself in this place of worship. And what's interesting is, once he cleanses the temple, he begins to preach. And he's preaching that the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. Believe in me. He's calling for himself. He's calling for people, calling men and women, to believe in himself for salvation. And people are coming. And people are believing. There's fruit being born in his ministry. Now, ironically, you have the, the scribes and the teachers of the law and the Pharisees who were to have a fruit-filled ministry bearing no fruit. And instead of being, being joyful and celebrating over this ministry of Jesus, they, in fact, are indignant and begin to challenge him. By what authority are you saying and doing these things? Well, here's what Jesus does. He confronts them with three judgment parables. He, he confronts them and condemns them. Now, last week, he confronted these, these religious leaders over their hypocrisy. Their religion was outward. There was no inward love for God. There was little obedience to God. Well, today, he's going to confront them about their fruitlessness. Their lives are yielding no fruit. And there's going to be a clear warning. So we're going to look at the parable. I'm just going to explain it to you. Just try to simply explain it to you that there's a clear warning for everyone in that parable, as well as there's words of healing that he's going to give us. He's going to heal the wounds that the warning creates. So let's look um, at this passage in 21. Let's read 33 to 46. Read through it with me. Um, It's a longer parable. Jesus says, hear another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went to another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, And they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. When the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to these tenants? They said to him, 
they said to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. So Jesus said to them, have you never read the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. When the chief priests and Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. Okay, so let me just explain this parable and the, the nature of this, this warning. Um, this parable, if you don't know, really follows very closely on the heels of Isaiah chapter 5. A, another parable, if you will. The language is amazingly similar and the same judgment against fruitlessness. And so Jesus is picking up Isaiah's parable and really bringing it to bear in, in much greater way, but he's bringing that parable to bear on these religious leaders. But notice how he starts in verse 33, because he's going to kind of set the table that God in his grace had called Israel to be a nation to bear fruit to the nations. So you see that in 33, he says, there was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it, built a tower and leased it to tenants and went to another country. Now, now, you see that this master of the house is really looking for success in this vineyard, right? He, he looks at fields, he assesses them, he chooses a field that's fertile, he buys the field, and then he puts a fence around it to prevent animals and thieves from going through it. He puts a tower in it, a large tower from which people can see and make sure that there's no threat of enemy. You use the tower to store the wine that you've made. You take shelter in the tower when it's storming. And, so, and then he puts a wine press in it, a wine press, so they get the grapes, and it's two levels, generally, wine presses. It's wood with plaster, and you squish the grapes in the one, the juice runs down and, and gets contained in barrels and, and with yeast and fermented, and so he puts that in there to increase production. Now, this kind of scene would have been known to a Jewish audience at the time. I mean, you had many wealthy landowners who lived in the city. They didn't want to work the field, so they, but they owned the field, and they wanted fruit from the field, and so they would, they would lease it to tenants who would take that field, and they would farm it. They would manage it. They would, they would raise up the crops from that field. So he built it for success. He built it for the purpose of receiving fruit. Now, when you hear the language of this text. Uh, you can't help it. It's not just a simple parable. It's really teaching about the history of Israel. It's really explaining, if you will, God's salvation history. You've got, you know, the vineyard being Israel. You have the master being God. You have the tenants. You know, all these different parts of the parable are seen in the book of Isaiah. They're seen in um, Jeremiah, they're seen in Ezekiel. And so he's really giving us a, a reminder of God raised up the nation of Israel to be fruitful. Now you remember the story in Genesis chapter 12. God calls Abraham out of the land of Ur, and he says that I'm going to build a people through you. You can look at the stars and you can see you'll have descendants as numerous as the stars are in the sky. That God is going to make Abraham fruitful. Just like Adam was called to be fruitful, 
And Noah was called to be fruitful. Abraham is called to be fruitful. Not simply in children, but in the expanding of God's kingdom to the nations. So that all the nations would see God as great and glorious. And so he raises up Abraham for this task. And Abraham's descendants are gathered together in the people of Israel. And God is calling them to be a light to the world. They are to image God. They have, the, they have the promises of God. They have the laws of God. They are to image God so that the world would see the fruit being born in Israel. They would be drawn to God through the witness of these people as they walked in integrity and compassion and justice. That was the intent of Israel. Israel was never chosen because they were special or they were better than the rest of us. They were chosen because God wanted to demonstrate his grace. I will pick this people and I will use them for my glory. And in that would be their joy. Well, as the story goes, and you know the history, we all know the history, they didn't walk in fruitfulness. And you see, as Jesus picks up this parable, what's what's he speak about? Well, the master of the house, when the fruit should have been due, which could have been three or four years following, he begins to send servants to collect the fruit. And he sends servants. So what are they? They're beaten. They're killed. They're stoned. He sends more servants who are treated the same way. And here's where the parable kind of takes a twist. Finally, the master says, I'll send my son. I'll send my son. They will respect my son. I will send him. And of course, we read what happens. They see the son. He's the heir. They probably assumed if the son is coming, the father must be dead. So if we kill the son, we get all the property. We don't have to live under this master anymore. We can be free of his rule. We can be free of his expectations. And so they kill the son and throw him out of the vineyard, which is a, just a, a slight reminder to people that will make sense when Jesus is taken out of the city to be killed. Okay, so... So obviously the tenants are the religious leaders. The servants being sent are prophets that God sends over and over and over to call people to fruitfulness. Remember now, the prophets in the Bible, they are not simply there to say, hey, this is going to happen in 150 years. The majority of the teaching of the prophets was to call the people of God to walk rightly before God. They're calling them to be fruitful. They're calling them to turn aside from sin, just as Josh prayed. We're repenting of our sin. We're walking in righteousness. That's what the prophets were doing. But there's a long history of antagonism towards the leadership to the prophets, and they did tend to treat them very poorly. Listen to what Jesus says in chapter 23. In this, in all of chapter 3, is a condemnation of the religious leaders. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites! For you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, If we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. He says, Fill up then the measure of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How are you to escape, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you kill and crucify, some of whom you flog in your synagogues, you persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah. That's the whole Old Testament. 
whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly, I say to you, all these things will come upon you. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. It's a history of it. And so Jesus is telling this parable against them. Now, obviously, the son in this parable is Jesus. It's obvious. Jesus is being sent, and he's the one that's murdered. Now, what's remarkable about this is Jesus is different than the prophets. He's not the same. Hebrews 1.4 says that in the last days, God has spoken to us in his son, the exact representation of his being. Jesus is different than the prophets. And this is the, <clears throat> excuse me, this is the height of rebellion to kill the son. I mean, do you see what Jesus is doing? He's giving to them what He's predicting his own death. He knows that he's going to die. Now, I I just want to stop here for just a a moment and just marvel with me, if you will. The absolute grace of God. You know, a lot of people at this point in the parable, they turn away from it and say, "Ah, I can't believe this parable. I mean, who would send his son after prophet after prophet after prophet is killed? I, I don't believe it. I mean, who would send his son? Nobody would, right? I mean, if you were a landowner and you wanted profit, you wouldn't. You'd send, you'd send the police or you'd send some tor- type of vigilant. You'd send somebody to rid the vineyard of these tenants. That's what you would do. That's what I would do. But God sends his son. That's the point of the parable. It's unfathomable grace that, that he would purposefully and the son voluntarily move in this regard, knowing that he would die, because that's the only way that God can reconcile us to himself. That's the only way that God can deliver his creation and redeem it fully to himself, is to send his own son. So I mean, the fact that God created all these things, established all these things, people rebelled, sends prophet after prophet after prophet. I mean, the patience of God. How long would you wait if you were a landowner? Would you continue to exercise patience for the purposes of redemption and then to send your very own son? It's remarkable. I mean, it is to leave us kind of to step back and say, I can't understand such grace. That kind of grace is fearful to me because I don't understand it. So Jesus, so they're hearing this. And then Jesus turns to them. He says, so what will the master do? What will the master do? Well, notice that in the parable, it's the Pharisees and the religious leaders that give the answer. And they said, they're going to take those wretched tenants and they're going to, he's going to put them to a miserable death. And then he's going to give the vineyard to others to produce its fruit. Now, this is kind of like me stringing the rope around my neck. This is really, a, a, this parable is, you know, some of these parables are intended to elicit self-condemnation. They're intended to bring about an immediate conviction of, whoa, what did I just do? What did I just say? That's what he's doing. He is condemning them. They have been given the law, the promises, the presence of God, and yet they rejected them all. It's kind of like with David. If you remember the story of David, King David and Nathan the prophet, King David, of course, committed adultery with Bathsheba, beautiful young woman, bathing. He saw her. He called her to his palace. He uh, had sex with her. She became pregnant. 
Then David tries to take her husband, Uriah, and, and, and tries to bring him back home so that he might sleep with his wife and thereby think that the child is his. But, but Uriah's too righteous. His men are in the field. He's not going to sleep with his wife when his men are in the field, so he stands post over David. And then David realizes is that it's getting shorter. He's going to get in trouble, so he puts Uriah in a point of the battle where he's assured of dying, and he does die. So David's trying to cover up his sin of adultery. And so Nathan the prophet comes and says to David, he says, let me tell you a story. There was a man who owned a little lamb. He only had one lamb. He had one lamb. And and there was another man that was a rich man. This man was poor, obviously. And the rich man had many, many lambs, great flocks. And he had a friend come visit him. And so threw a feast for him. And what he did was, instead of taking from his flock, he went and took this one man's one little lamb and sacrificed that lamb to feed his friend. And David is boiling with righteous indignation and says, surely that man must die right now. And David says, you're the man. I mean, that's like, wow. Jesus is telling these Pharisees and religious leaders that the kingdom of God is going to be taken from you. He's bringing judgment upon them. It's going to be taken from you, and it's going to be given to another. They gave their own words of self-condemnation. Well, what do we do with this? Well, clearly it is being told to the religious leadership. But we would be foolish to, to restrict it to that alone. What we see here is a principle where God is condemning among his people a fruitlessness. He's condemning a fruitlessness in our lives. Now listen, when I speak about the fruit of our lives, we're not talking about how many children we produce. I'm talking about the image of God being born through our lives, through our relationships. I'm talking about the integrity and the compassion and the justice that we exhibit. I'm talking about the, the sacrifice that we render to one another. I'm speaking about the the efforts that we go to work in some redemptive direction in the relationships that we have with people. The the way we love, the way we suffer, the way we're trying to promote Christ within people. That's what I'm talking about, the fruit of our lives. God is standing here as the master, and he has right to receive fruit because he's given you everything you have. What do you have that has not been given to you? Everything that we see has been created by God. He owns everything. And he privileges upon us many of these things that we are to use for his glory and enjoy. But use, he doesn't ask for every scrap of fruit. He says, give me the fruit. And they didn't. They were fruitless. Why? How can you be so fruitless? How can we be so fruitless? I think one reason, one reason here is that you forget you're a steward. You forget that you don't own it. You forget that you're a tenant. And we have become, and we struggle in this nation, of massive privilege of consumerism, of just consuming. I mean, many of us, we look at our things and they're ours. It's like the little kid with a toy, mine. I mean, they, they just, it's mine. There's no conception that these things that we have have been given to us. And so they stand under God's judgment because of their fruitlessness. We forget 
that you came into this world with nothing. And by the way, you're leaving in a cheap suit, and that's it. And the suit stays, actually. So you leave with nothing. You come with nothing, and you leave with nothing. It, it reminds me of that if you've read the books, Lord of the Rings, and, or seen the movie, the third one, I think it's called Return of the King. I know probably my son is worried about how I'm going to work through this one. But the, the steward... The steward of Gondor, which is a a great kingdom, waiting for their king, and the the kingdom of Mordor across the way, which was the wicked kingdom. Well, while the king was away in Gondor, there was a steward. There was a man who was appointed to run the kingdom in lieu of the king while he is absent. But when the king comes back, he steps aside. The king is here. We want the king to reign. But in the movie, you see this, this wicked man who has been a steward, but he's really in his mind become the king. And he hears the king coming back. He doesn't want the king to come back. Ends up being judged over that. But he doesn't want the We're the same way. And, and you see him, there's these scenes in the movie, at least and in the book as it's articulated, of him just being this selfish, just, just hoarding type of man for himself. Is that what we've become? I mean, when you consider the privileges that God has given you, I mean, the privileges of of wealth and education and position and power and the various giftings, have you been fruitless? That's the warning. And, And that's where we should all be kind of feeling a little bit uncomfortable right now. That's the warning, but it's a it creates a wound from a friend, and you can trust it. So look at what Jesus does now in 42 following. He gives words of healing to the wound, I think, that he just created. And, and he's going to reveal, Jesus will reveal himself in a manner that can heal us and lead us to very fruit-filled lives. He can lead us to lives that will be fruitful so that when God sees us, well done, my faithful servant, well done. So look with me at 42. The first thing we have to remember, if we're going to walk away from this fruitlessness into a fruit-filled life, is that Jesus alone has the power to save. Jesus is absolutely unique in everything he does and everything he says. Look at what he says in 42. He says, have you never read the scriptures? Now he's talking to theologians. So, I mean, it's kind of a bit of a slap in the face. Have you never read the scriptures? These men not only had read the scriptures, they probably had memorized Psalm 118, which is where it comes from. But they didn't believe it. That's a good warning for us. Many of us read through the scriptures. Do you ever ask yourself as you're reading through the scriptures, do I believe this? Do I really believe what I just read? Is it really true? Can I put my life on this? When he says, don't worry about what you're going to eat or drink or wear. Shouldn't I? Your Heavenly Father knows you need these things. Do I believe that? So to be, just be aware of that. You can read through the scriptures and you can learn much theology and, and have your heart unmoved because there's no faith with the reading. So he says, have you not read the scriptures? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. It's marvelous in our eyes. Now listen, 
That's from Psalm 118, 22 and 23. And that psalm was originally used by the nation of Israel to give praise to God because God had taken this little stone, which was representing the nation of Israel. It's an insignificant stone. If you were a builder and you were looking for stones, you'd walk right by that one. You'd reject it. You'd hold it. I don't need this one for the building. You'd reject it. God, in his unfathomable wisdom, takes what's insignificant and he does significant things through it. And so Psalm 18 was a psalm of praise that the people would say, God, thank you for choosing insignificant us. And through us, the nations are going to be blessed. All the nations will come to understand your redemptive power through us. That's what he's saying. Now, Jesus takes this psalm and he applies it to himself. In other words, the Pharisees knew what he was doing. He's referencing himself now as the stone. This insignificant stone, he's speaking to the builders, that is now the church leaders, who are supposed to be building the church, who are supposed to be causing the church to move in fruitfulness, the people of God. And he says, the stone that you rejected has become the capstone of the cornerstone. You know what the cornerstone is? Cornerstone is the corner of a building. It's a significant stone. All the other stones are cut to fit the cornerstone. The building rests upon it. It's integral to the integrity of the building. Everything rests upon it. The building can't, the building's dependence is on that stone. Jesus is saying, I'm the cornerstone. Now, first Peter, um, the apostle Peter in his preaching in Acts makes this more clear. He says, Peter, this is his sermon that he gives. Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the capstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Do you see what he's saying? Jesus is saying to them, I am now the entire redemptive plan on God. I represent Israel. I'm the embodiment of Israel. That the whole plan of God's salvation is resting upon me. There is no other name under heaven by which you must be saved. All the nations are now putting their hope in Jesus Christ. That he's the Savior. This is God's doing. It's to be marvelous in our eyes. So for us to be fruitful, we begin by just marveling over the greatness of Christ. We're marveling over the fact that Jesus would come, take upon flesh, suffer and die, be raised, vindicating him as truly the Son of God, and that salvation, our salvation, is in him alone. Now listen, he's talking to religious people. Religion will make you better. It usually makes you better. If you start hanging around this church and you hang around people in this church, your life will get better. There'll be a measure of cleanup that takes place. But Jesus doesn't make us better. He makes us new. The power of the gospel makes us new. That's why he says you must be born again. When we put our faith in the gospel, that is in Jesus being the one from heaven that has been sent to save and that through his death and his resurrection, his perfect life in every way, when we trust in that means when we rest in that, when that is where our hope rests, we will be made new. We won't simply be made better. We're going to be changed from the inside. This is what has to happen for the Christian. Many people come to churches and and there's a certain degree of self-reformation that takes place because we're hanging around with other people. 
who have experienced the newness, but, but because you're hanging around men made new doesn't make you new. It comes through faith in Christ alone. That's very important. And, and out of the faith of the gospel comes fruit-bearing capacity. We, you see this, those of you studying Colossians chapter 1 and verse 5, he says, you've heard before the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed the whole world, and it's bearing fruit and increasing. That's the power of the gospel. When I begin believing in Christ, I begin living differently because now I'm able to do things through his power that I couldn't do before. And so for us to be walking in a fruit-filled life, it begins with Christ and Christ alone. But, but let me remind you that's kind of an implicit truth in this text. This, this Jesus over whom we marvel had to face judgment before vindication. He had to go through death before delight. He had to suffer before satisfaction. That is the superstructure of the Christian life. Do you realize that? That though we have the power of the gospel in us, it works as we move into darkness, into delight. So we will suffer. We will face crosses before crowns. As the one that we followed did, so do we. The hope we have is that as he was led to vindication and delight, so will we. It was an article I read just uh, a couple weeks ago, and it was an article from uh, Gospel Coalition. It said, parents, teach your children that a cross precedes a crown. I thought it was beautiful. Teach your children. We want to huddle our children up, protect them. We don't want them to suffer at all. We want them to be insulated and given the best shot at life. And we usually view that as some kind of bunker mentality where we're protected. No, teach them it's going to be a cross before a crown. That's the way it is. And we marvel over that. We stand in amazement. But I want you to know that in this world, though there be trouble, we can be of good cheer because he's overcome the world. And so fruit is born in darkness. And that fruit is glorious as we struggle and as we fight and as we persevere. Fight for faith. That is the call that he's put upon us. But then secondly, let me remind you, a second thing to remember for fruit-bearing lives is that he's called us to be a new people. You notice in verse 43, in verse 43 he says, the kingdom of God has been taken from you, starting with religious leaders and by extension the, the failing people of God, if you will, those who are professing faith, and it's given to a people. Now, who is this people? A lot of times we read this and we think, God is just saying, I'm done with Israel, I'm done with the Jewish nation, and I'm moving right to the Gentiles. And really, that teaching has led to a lot of anti-Semitism. Because now we're done with Israel, and uh, it, yeah, it's, it has bled into a lot of bad teaching. I don't think it's saying that at all. I think what he's saying here is Jesus is now reconstituting a people. Originally, God used the lineage of Abraham to establish a people to be a light to the world. And now he's gathering a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. By faith in Christ, through the Spirit, they are a new people. In other words, and for those of you who have studied this a little bit, Jesus is not establishing another vineyard. He's not saying, well, this is Israel's vineyard. I'm going to go to another vineyard. You see that the tenants in the parable are not sent to another vineyard. These other people, presumably Gentiles, well, first the disciples, but then Gentiles following, are going to be planted in the one and only vineyard that he has. What Jesus is doing 
is he's giving the stewardship of his kingdom, he's extending it beyond the nation of Israel, now to being the people of God, Jew and Gentile alike. And you see this in 1 Peter, actually when he references the same stone language, he says, as you come to him, so Peter is writing to a Gentile audience, he's saying, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by man, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So what he's doing here is he's saying that the old physical outward um, manifestation of God's presence in the temple with the Jewish priests that have come from the lineage of Abraham, that's done. Now it's a new people by the Spirit of God through faith that will be priests. So it, it removes. And there's no going back now. There's no going back. So in a thousand years, if Jesus returns, there's no going back to the Gentiles are taken out and the Jews. But that, that isn't seen here. We're now one people before God. Now, this is important for the purposes of your fruitfulness. Why? Because do you understand the people that you're with? I mean, you've been included. You once were far away. You've been brought near. You once were not a people. Now you're a people. And, and being together and participating with and investing in the life of these people here in this local church, this is where you bear fruit. To go at life alone, you will not bear fruit, but to be together, we will. In fact, in Ephesians 3.10, Paul speaks about the manifold wisdom of God being made known through the church, through our collected service to people. Even the preaching. The, the role of preaching, for example, is important. You know, God kept sending prophets to the nation of Israel. He kept sending prophets to cultivate a fruitfulness, to challenge the people to live rightly before God. Well, you know, an old word for preaching is prophesying. And what we do week in and week out, what happens on Wednesday night, what happens on Thursday morning, what happens when you gather together, you're breaking the word with each other, that's going to bear fruit. Because you're going to hear it and you're going to think, am I a steward or am I an owner? So you're going to leave here being challenged in terms of your life. The way we pray for you is that the challenge would result in celebration of change and your life begins to change and you begin to bear fruit. And so you're thankful for what you've heard. And that happens from the pulpit. It happens with each other. So that's the second thing to remember. You're the new people of God. There is, you're not parenthesis, you're the new people of God. And then thirdly, it's clear that we have to remember that we, fruit is a necessity. It's a necessity of what our lives are, are to produce. That's what Jesus says. You know, he says he'll take the kingdom from you and it'll be given to another who will produce its fruits. Now remember what fruits were. So if I were looking at my vertical relationship with God, the fruit would be, I'm not just here kind of outwardly devoting myself to God. I'm not here just for the appearance of man. I am cultivating an inward desire for Christ. I want to worship him. I want affections for Christ. I want to love him. And I want to love him more. And I want to love him more. I know the love that I have for my wife. I want more love for Christ. I want more. And, and, and that's the fruit as your heart begins to swell with greater attractiveness for this Christ who's come down to save me. But not just my vertical relationship with God, fruit being born among us. How do we live with each other? Are we willing to sacrifice? Are we willing to serve one another? 
I mean, the way you extend yourself for the benefit of another, whether it be finances, whether it be just listening, whether it be just loving, are we willing to sacrifice for one another? That's fruit. Or, or, or fruit outside, you know, in terms of how do we love the world? You know, here's a question I'd like to ask. If we got taken away, if a big, if a big stone landed on our church and flattened it, and all of us were just, if it was, would anybody know we were gone? Anybody over there know we were gone? I mean, are we doing enough? Are we, is, our fruit, is our fruit significant enough that we'd be missed? Right, we got the letter, you know, you've been serving, Marissa. Carol's been leading uh, the feeding of the Fox Road Elementary School teachers. We got the sweet little note that Lauren sent out to those who uh, participated. And this teacher just thanking Christ Covenant Church uh, for serving them, grateful for the service. I, lo- I love that. I, I mean, for, I don't know where they come from. I don't know what the woman, you know, what her faith is or what she believes. It doesn't even matter to me at one level. What matters is that she was blessed by service and sacrifice of this church. I, I mean, it's really important for you uh, to consider this fruit bearing. Jesus said, you did not choose me. I chose you and I chose you to bear fruit, fruit that would be that would be lasting. And you've been given gifts, every one of you. In First Peter, he says clearly, he says, uh, each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks the oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that everything God may be glorified through Christ Jesus. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. So let me ask you, you know, first you want to remember that Christ alone saves. You want to remember that you're the new people of God. And then thirdly, you're remembering that you're going to be fruitful. How have you stewarded the privileges God has given you? As I said, some of you have been given wealth. Some of you have been given a position. Some of you have gifts of teaching, of service, of, of, of cheerfulness. And when you look at your lives, how have you stewarded? How have you leveraged those gifts for some redemptive purpose outside of yourself have all your gifts and talents only served to increase your own life what are you what have you what will you do this is a question you must ask yourself otherwise we slip right back into the warning passage of fruitlessness what have you done with what you have i mean we have a lot of horsepower in this church I mean, there's a, a lot of you are highly educated, highly motivated, skilled, successful people, men and women. How have you leveraged that? How have you taken advantage? God's given you these things. How is it being manifest out? Something you want to be asking yourself. Not, not to feel bad. Don't walk out of here feeling condemned. Walk out of here thinking, I I'm gifted in this way, and I'm going to use it in this way so that this church would be known if we just disappeared tomorrow, that we'd be known, that, that those outside the faith would actually be sad. They'd be sad that, no, that they served our community well. So I'm putting that before you. I'm asking you to pray about it because that is one area that we can clearly grow in, a sacrificial heart dedicated to using our gifts for redemptive purposes outside of ourselves. That's a clear charge and call to you to think about.
Okay, the fourth thing that I want us to remember, and you see this in verse 44. Look at it with me because it's kind of a startling verse. He says, the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. I think what Jesus is saying, if you want to be fruitful, you have to remember that the kingdom to which you belong is eternal. It is solid. It is, you know, he's drawing this line in 44. It comes from Daniel chapter 2, verses 35 and 43 and 44. And and Daniel is speaking about, out of all the kingdoms of this world, there's going to be one kingdom, and it's going to be a stone. And this kingdom is going to crush all the other kingdoms. There is never going to be a threat on this kingdom. This kingdom will be fixed, and it will be firm, and it will be glorious, and it will be for the glory of God, never moved. That's what he's promising. Jesus, in referencing this, is saying to them, this is the kingdom that I bring. This is the kingdom to which the believer here is a part of. This fixed and firm kingdom with a king that upon Jesus, if you fall upon him, you'll be busted to pieces. If he falls upon you, you'll be crushed to powder. There is no middle road here. The way we look at Christ, there is no middle road. It is you bow the knee to this glorious king who has come from above. Or you face the consequences of rebelling against this eternal king. He is telling us here clearly, we can be fruitful in very difficult... Listen, we live in a very geopolitically chaotic world right now. We've got everybody wanting to be king of the hill. We've got China, we've got Russia, we've got the ISIS caliphate. We've got everybody wants to be king of the hill. And, and this, this, we've got geopolitical turmoil, we've got cultural turmoil, and a lot of us Christians are get rattling and getting scared. This is what we turn to. This is why we don't get scared. This is a stone upon anyone falls, they're in a thousand pieces. If if it falls on you, you're crushed to powder. This is why we're confident, not cocky, we're confident, we're restful, we're peaceful because of the one who is the king. So you see at the end here in 45 and 46, you see the response of the Pharisees. Foolish response they. They saw it, they perceived it, they understood it, and they went to arrest him. But again, their fear of man thwarted them. It won't continue to as we march through this last week of his life. So here's the warning. The warning is for us to look at the fruitlessness of our lives. Have we been fruitless? The warning is, what are we going to do with Jesus Christ? I would encourage anybody here who is not a Christian, or you're thinking of Christian, um, you're looking at the faith and considering its teachings. It all centers on Christ. And let me implore you, let me plead with you, if you're not a Christian, to not reject Christ, to consider him, to think through this. Take time. Don't presume upon God, you know, the prophets after prophets. We don't want to presume upon God, but I would implore don't reject Christ. If you reject Christ, then falling upon him, him falling upon you is to your demise. I mean, that is clear in this text. It is a warning of full judgment. For the Christian, listen to the healing words. And for the non-Christian, listen to the healing words. Jesus alone saves. Jesus Christ is gathering a people to himself. Jesus Christ is calling for this gathered people to be fruitful until he brings his kingdom in full measure. That's the hope and the joy that we have. So let's take a minute now and consider these things. If you're not a Christian, consider where you are with Christ. If you have questions about this, come forward later after the service. If you are a Christian, consider the fruitlessness of your life. 
It may lead you to thankfulness over what you've been able to do by his power. It may lead you to conviction. And then Levy's going to close us in just a moment.